If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, the editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the leader of a passionate group of fishermen called the Swisher Fishers, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, joining us remotely is Andrew Yang, the former 2020 presidential candidate and entrepreneur who got a lot of attention while he was in the race for his proposal to send every American adult $1,000 every month, which is a form of universal basic income. We're recording this on Wednesday, March 18th, and this week that concept has come roaring back as Congress is trying to do something about the coronavirus pandemic. First, Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan and Ro Khanna have proposed sending at least $1,000 to everyone making under $65,000 per year. And now the Trump administration has also endorsed sending everyone cash with no strings attached. We're recording this just as the first details about the proposal are trickling out. But the gist of it is that the Treasury Department would send two checks to every American based on their need and family size, totaling $500 billion and beginning in April. Since dropping out of the race, Andrew has founded an organization called Humanity Forward to advocate for UBI. All right, Andrew, welcome back to Recode Decode. Where are we're both doing this remotely because of the coronavirus crisis? Where are you from? Where are you? I'm in New York. I'm in New York, but a different part of New York. I'm upstate in the country. Uh, so I've been shuttling back and forth to the city, but on this one, it's probably better that we're, we're doing this from different places. <laughs> 100%, as much as I like seeing you in person. Anyway, let's get right into it. Uh, the coronavirus crisis. Um, just this week, as I've just said, um, the Congress is looking to give every American, I think, under $65,000, $1,000 to try to assuage the situation. Why don't you sort of talk about it? Because everyone's suddenly like Andrew Yang was right, although it's slight, it's very different from what you were proposing. So why don't we just get right into it? Well, the details have yet to be ironed out as to what the intervention or stimulus is going to look like. The last I saw is that they're preparing two monthly tranches, one in early April, April 6th, the second one May 18th. And it looks like the amounts that are going to be distributed to people are going to be means tested on and on a sliding scale. But the mm -hmm. main idea is very, very much identical to universal basic income where the vast majority of Americans are going to get a check from the government in order to help us weather this crisis. And I'm for, obviously, a version of this continuing in perpetuity. I think it's a good idea all the time. But in the midst of a crisis, it's vital that we get purchasing power into people's hands as quickly as possible. And I'm 
thrilled that the administration is making this move. All right. So talk about the, the differences, because one of the, I mean, again, you had a different proposal and you talked about it not incessantly, but you know, incessantly, essentially. Talk about how you would look at this. Did you think about this in terms of a crisis or sketch it out for people that don't know a lot about what your proposal was? Well, in many ways, Kara, this is like an accelerated version of what I was uh, concerned about, where I was concerned about the fact that technology is advancing in a way that's going to marginalize more and more human labor, and that we've already seen that in many industries, the automation of 4 million plus manufacturing jobs that, in my mind, helped lead to Donald Trump's election in 2016, because most of those jobs were in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, the swing states that Trump won. Mm -hmm. And that was going to just pick up steam with Amazon closing 30% of our malls and stores, eventually self-driving cars and trucks. So I was arguing that we needed to humanize our economy as quickly as possible and start separating economic value and intrinsic human value. And the amount I'd recommended was $1,000 a month immediately for every American adult. Uh, Now, if you think about this pandemic, in many ways, it's like an accelerated version of sending us all home and making it so that we can't actually command a living wage in the market because Mm -hmm. there is no market and you're not allowed to leave the house. And if you worked in a restaurant or bar or hotel or airline, uh, then your job isn't there for you to go back to anyway. Uh, And so now it's being laid bare that obviously there needs to be a way to get economic value into people's hands when we're trapped at home. Uh, And so a version of universal basic income becomes completely obvious in an accelerated fashion. It's kind of emergency universal cash payments. It's different from you were proposing something that would give people a a breathing room. This is money because people won't have, have immediately stopped working at all. Well, imagine, Karen, this is something that I'm and concerned about, and we can talk about it later in this conversation, but how long is this going to last? Like, let's say it lasted six months, then obviously we would need to put money into people's hands uh, for month. quite some time. You know? yeah. and, and this is one reason why, in my mind, doing this all the time would be wise, because in a country as wealthy as ours, we can easily afford to, to put uh, enough into people's hands where they can meet their basic needs And then if there is a crisis or they lose their job, then they're able to bounce back in a much steadier fashion. Mm -hmm. But you're you're totally correct that what we're looking at now is in many ways uh, an emergency version of a universal basic income because the consensus is so clear that this is something we have to do. Someone was tweeting the other day, uh, Max Zeitlin was putting, I thought a lot about today how UBA has become a catch-all for giving away money. Uh, that's something you try to push off because everyone's like, he's, you know, everyone had the socialist idea with Bernie Sanders. Talk about why you don't think it is. So for people who aren't as familiar with what you were talking about, because a lot of, that was what it was, including people, the Republicans, this is a giving away money to people uh, scheme by Andrew Yang. Ah, the Andrew Yang giving away money scheme. (laughs) (laughs) Money bags Yang. Anyway, talk about that concept of of why, you know, and here all of a sudden a lot of Republicans have become, you know, socialists in that regard. Well, first, uh, we have to straighten out our thinking on some of these concepts. Uh, And I'm I'm someone, I know you know that, but I'm someone who believes very deeply in the power of markets. Um, Just the, the issues are, uh, how do you solve non-market-based problems and how do you address uh, the needs of people for whom the market stops having a use, uh, which is going to be more and more people over time? 
And when someone said to me, oh, you're a socialist, I said, look, this is capitalism where income doesn't start at zero. It's actually excellent for the consumer market, for businesses, for entrepreneurship, that people have money to spend. Mm -hmm. uh, and having a robust middle class actually helps create economic opportunity up and down the chain in a way that squeezing more and more people out of uh, the, the ability to buy things uh, that are not essentials, it, it doesn't help you create businesses. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually the future of capitalism. And to me, we've always had to harness the power of markets to improve our lives and start broadening what the market rewards. And the example I used that was always close to home was that my wife is at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic. And now, obviously, she's really at home. Uh, <laughs> where, you know, like we're bringing homeschooling the kids and like every day is like, a, a, you know, a, a challenge. Mm -hmm. And the market would value her work at zero. And right. anyone who's a parent knows that her work is actually uh, both vital and challenging. And so we needed to think bigger about what we're rewarding, what kind of work is valuable, um, how the markets end up reinforcing things that we know we need more of. Uh, and so those were some of the big ideas I had around um, the freedom dividend, which was my version of universal basic income, as something that was necessary for capitalism to continue and to continue to evolve. Well, talk about that idea of it. So this is what capitalism now, because, you know, Mark Benioff talks about that. You talk about it. Talk about what kind of capitalism would you call it? Well, right now we're in this hyper corporatized version of capitalism and it's just going to become more extreme in terms of the winner-take-all economy where you can see the gains have been concentrated in the hands of a smaller and smaller number of firms and a smaller and smaller number of individuals. And so is that sustainable? Uh, I, I would argue that that's going to become nastier and nastier for everyone, for people uh, who are enjoying the gains and definitely for people who are not. And so people like Mark Benioff are talking about ways to reform capitalism, have stakeholder capitalism, and that's the right idea. But the brutal truth of it, Kara, is that if you have one set of incentives, essentially, which is to optimize your company's bottom line, and then some AI company comes in and says, hey, I can replace thousands of your back office clerical workers with a software license, you have to do that. Like, you know, that, right. that that's, and it's not for us to blame you for doing that because that's the way our system is set up. So we can't chastise innovators for doing their jobs. We can't chastise CEOs for doing their jobs. What we have to do is actually rewrite the software of uh, why they're doing what they're doing. Like, what are the incentives for the CEO to do something that actually takes care of workers that are no longer valuable to his or her business? I was, I was in Kentucky. I was talking to a lot of coal miners. I'm like, they're going to put robots in here. I don't care what they tell you. You know, I think this is, they should, and this is their businesses. This is how they, you know, this is how things change. And I remember interviewing Travis Kalanick of Uber once, and he said the same thing, getting rid of the guy in the front seat really helps my business. Um, and he was the first to articulate that in such a stunningly horrible way in some ways. But giving people money, of course, gives them money to consume. But what about the idea of changing capitalists to get people to think more creatively of people's jobs? Because that's really what has to happen. And, and, and that's what I believe is necessary. Like, I, I think that right now we have some very narrow measurements as to what economic value even looks like. Uh, we use GDP as our biggest benchmark. And GDP is something we invented almost 100 years ago. 
and even its inventor, Simon Kuznets, said this is a terrible measurement of national well-being and we should never use it as that. And here we are chanting it still 100 years later. Uh, shareholder value is also a very narrow measurement. And so we have to think about what we actually care about in our own lives, in our families' lives. And there are clearly things like health and life expectancy, mental health and freedom from substance abuse, childhood success rates, clean air and clean water. These are things we actually do have numbers for. Uh, and so if we could transition or include GDP in this tapestry of measurements where it's a, an important data point, but it's one of many. Uh, and the example I was using on the, the, the trail was life expectancy has been trending downward for the last number of years. It went down three years in a row recently. So if your GDP is going up and your life expectancy is going down, which do you care about? And you can't pretend somehow that they're in lockstep with each other anymore because they're clearly at this point almost negatively like correlated. Right. And, and as someone who's operated organizations, if you have the wrong measurements, you're going to end up heading in the wrong direction. Uh, what we really need is an upgrade in measurements to include how we are doing. And then if we can actually start to steer companies and organizations in that direction, uh, we can change capitalism for the better in a meaningful way. Right. Well, that's math, uh, math, uh, uh, Andrew. So we'll get to math in a minute, which was your, which was your motto, um, make uh, America think again. But let's get back to this situation and we'll get more into your campaign and what you were trying to do in the next section. But what do you, when you look at this and people are like, oh, Andrew Yang was right. I mean, what, how do you assess what they're doing now and what do you think they need to do and what do they need to do more of? Um, because it's right now sort of on the fast track to happening this uh, economic stimulus package. Yes. So cash in people's hands is an absolute good at this point. Like we should just be moving cash into people's hands uh, broadly, quickly, dramatically. One of the metaphors I've been using is that if your house is on fire, you don't really care about how much water you're using <laughs> to, to put out the fire. <laughs> and at this point, our economy is on fire uh, and we need to put liquidity into people's hands uh, to help put them at ease, make them able to to feed themselves and their families. But we also can't fool ourselves into thinking that that's actually enough. Uh, because if you look at the economic impacts in an average community, um, so first you have the people and the families being able to feed themselves. But then you have all of these small businesses that were operating essentially at a break-even point, uh, even in normal times. Yeah. Yeah, it was tough for a lot of people. That people don't recognize that, even though the GDP's gone up and everybody seems wealthy. Well, there's a lot of wealth out yeah, there. No, there's a lot of wealth, but you know, I mean, it's not like everyone works for Amazon. Um, you know, it's like uh, right. like the average small business. Let's say a restaurant or bar um, is lucky to break even, and so then if you choke off their revenue for let's call it two to three months, they end up in a very deep dark hole. And then even if you say, "Hey, great news! You reopen three months later," the hole is still there. So the question is, how do you recapitalize that small business in a way right. so that they reopen? Because if you're, if you're a bar owner who is just scraping by and then your bar now is in deep uh, debt in the, in the red because you've had to pay rent and other expenses and had no revenue for the last several months, like you might want to walk away because if you get back there, it's like, how are you going to dig yourself out of that hole? And then if you're the government, how do you actually recap that bank or so the, that bar and make it so that the bar owner actually can reopen and start to make money for themselves again. That's a very difficult thing to do 
at hundreds of thousands of food trucks and cell phone dog right. walkers and uh, bars and restaurants and catering businesses. Uh, Babies, yeah, everyone, everyone. everyone. Yeah. It goes through the. I mean, the only people who are full employment right now are nurses and doctors, which is really and honest, apparently you know, grocery and store chains and, and some others. Yeah, and grocery store chains, which is, although there's some controversy around that, is that, you know, Amazon's never done better because of deliveries, but the people in the warehouses are at risk of getting sick. So um, it creates, you know, all kinds of disruption everywhere. Um, so these bars, one of the ways is to drop uh, to drop interest rates, which they've done to almost zero. Um, so eventually, when we have to recapitalize, they can lend, they can be lent to. But again, it does. It puts them in a, in a lending hole of money they never wanted to borrow in the first place. Yeah. And I was talking to someone who runs restaurants, and he said as much. He said, look, if you give me a loan, it just means I'm in the hole still. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. and so the, the question is, how would you create a way for that business to reopen and then eventually perhaps forgive part of those loans based upon whether they employ people at a certain level? But, but the government is really bad at actually um, administering and measuring any kind of program that has some sort of rubric involved. Uh, and so it's a really, really tough challenge, and it's going to get tougher the longer this drags on. All right. So pretend you were president, Andrew, because he ran for president, and we're going to get into that in a second. What would you do right now? Pass the stimulus package or just pass a thousand dollars a month for everybody? Because it's trillions of dollars. It's you know this was just like Medicare for all and everything else. It's high cost. I think the stimulus packages are on the right track. If anything, I would go bigger. Uh, and I was with Anthony Scaramucci yesterday, and he made a, a comparison to being at war. And then at World War II, um, you had deficit spending of 20% of GDP over time, which given our GDP is like 21 trillion, you're looking at something like 4.2 trillion in potential stimulus. And you have to look at it compared to the cost of a depression, which is a very realistic possibility if you look at how many sectors of the economy have essentially stopped functioning at all. And what's the cost of a depression? Depending upon how long it lasts, it's also trillions and trillions of dollars. So this goes back to the, if your house is on fire, you don't really care how much water you're using to put out the fire. Uh, this is what our government uh, and its resources are for, is to try and uh, keep us strong and whole through this time. And so I would, as president, I would say, look, we're thinking about this too small. We should be going much, much bigger. Uh, and Anthony's plan, which I think has the right, uh, right idea, is large cash transfers to people, yes, but also that the government starts serving as the buyer of last resort for small businesses, for big businesses. Mm -hmm. And businesses are going to end up taking a haircut on this in some way. Um, but we have to try and make it so that they actually are able to resume functioning when the time comes. Uh, and you should spare no expense in that direction. Yeah. And it has iterations around the, you know, a store, you know, it, the real estate, it goes right into real estate, it goes into cars, it goes into uh, pretty much everything. It, it do, there's nowhere it doesn't touch because everything iterates on top of each other and it's sort of a cascading effect. Um, to everybody's businesses. The, the other big thing I would do, Kara, is, and this is one frustration that I have about the way this crisis is being handled, is that first it seemed like the administration was not taking it very seriously. And then now they have oh, gone really? to, you oh think? my gosh, like, uh, you know, the world is on fire. And this is a real pandemic. Uh, it's going to cost thousands, um, in all likelihood, tens of thousands or even more 
American lives over the next number of weeks and months. Um, but the problem that I think many of us have is that there's very little visibility as to where we are in this crisis, what the timeline could look like, what the factors are in terms of its duration. Like my kids' schools closed. I imagine yours did too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so if you're a school administrator and you're getting this guidance, you say, okay, I'm going to close the school. Makes sense. Uh, you know, there's a public health hazard and, and the last thing you want to do is be uh, somehow um, responsible for someone getting infected. So what is the catalyst that would then cause us to reopen the schools? Is it that infection rates are dropping? Well, we don't even know what the infection rates are because testing is so right, sparse. Right, no testing, yeah. And the, the fact is the incidence rate as reported is probably going to rise for a long time to come. And so to me, the big problem is that there's a lack of visibility as to whether what we're doing is effective, how we know it's effective, what the timelines could look like, whether if we adopt heroic social distancing measure, we're going to be able to shorten the crisis by a certain period of time. Um, right now, it just seems like we're in mitigate, mitigate, mitigate mode, but there's very little sense as to how we're going to know if it's working. Right. Uh, so, right. so that's, to me, a, a big missing piece from the administration's communication about uh, the coronavirus crisis called data, which you know about very well. Um, and they don't have any data. They don't have enough data, except as people die, um, they get that data. And then as people end up in hospitals sick, which is going to see a huge peak in the coming two or three dozen days. And, and I had two friends and family members who were down with what seemed like the flu mm -hmm. in a really serious way, like knocked yep. them out for two weeks. Me too. I had it too. A respiratory flu that was just the worst thing I've ever had. I don't even know what it was. Oh, and, and right now we ask them, it's like, hey, you think you might have had the coronavirus? Because it, it was in that time frame. Mm -hmm. And yep. they're like, hell yeah. if I know. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's what I say. I was like, and great. What, who did I infect and everything else? And where did I get it and everything else? Anyway, we're going to get back in a second with Andrew Yang. This is a fascinating discussion. He's the founder of Humanity Forward, which is an organization that advocates for universal basic income. He also ran for president. We're going to take a quick break now. We're going to talk to him about that when we get back. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. 
We're here with Andrew Yang, obviously, a uh, former presidential candidate. So what's what, how do you feel about your the running? We talked a lot about coronavirus. I want to get back to it at the end about data and what other things we need to do and what tech can do to help. But first, I want to talk about your run. What, what How do you feel about what you did? And why did you why did you drop out? Obviously, you didn't get any delegates or enough delegates. You got a few. Um, is that correct? You got a, Did you get any? Oh, I got a bunch of votes, but I did not get uh, any delegates because I dropped out after New Hampshire and you needed 15 percent right. or more. Uh, in each of those states to get delegates. Uh, and that's why I ended my campaign, Kara. What's interesting, I'll, I'll relate this to your audience because it might be interesting. So running for president, if you supported me, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, we raised tens of millions of dollars. We spent it on ads in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, and then we got 5% of the vote in Iowa, which looked much, much lower because of the caucus rules, where if you were below 15% in a district, then you get zeroed out. So my 5% functionally shrank to something like 1%. And then we went to New Hampshire and uh, got somewhere between those two figures, maybe 3%. And at that point, it was clear that I was not going to win the nomination. And I still had originally planned to stay in the race the whole way because I'm a hardworking Asian entrepreneur and, you know, why drop out? Like, let's you know, just take it to the limit. Um, but some people sat me down and said, hey, Andrew, um, if you drop out after New Hampshire, um, it will actually be better for your ideas and your movement over time than if you stay in and grind it out for a while. And here's why. And then they explained it to me and they convinced me. And so what was the explanation that convinced you? Well, the explanation was like, if you continue to run, um, the press will see it as their responsibility to completely ignore you. And so then when you drop out, um, it will be just like a tiny blurb and no one will actually pay it any mind. Whereas if you drop out now, then people will uh, in the press will respond to it as a very principled action. And you'll actually get um, a bit of a moment to be able to promote your ideas uh, and go out on something of a high. Right. And so tell me about the experience. What was it like? I mean, give me some inside skinny. What can I tell you, Kara? I mean, I my, my experience what, what was, was a, a lot of. I've never run for president. I'm thinking you've never run for president, Kara. You should. No, not yet. Not yet, Andrew. Not yet. You'd have my vote <laughs> unless I was running. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know if you're going to run again, but or if you're going to run for something in a second. But give the experience. You're like a regular guy compared to sort of, you know, politicians who do this every day of the week and twice on Sunday. You're you're a you're a different kind of candidate. Well, I would compare myself to many people who I suspect are listening to this is that I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and operator. Uh, and I, I think entrepreneurs try and solve problems. And the problems I saw were that uh, we were in the midst of this economic transformation and our political system, frankly, wasn't responding to it. And so I said, OK, how do you solve that problem? It's very difficult. Uh, it seems like you need to run for president to have a chance. And so I approach running for president like a startup. I was like, okay, now what do you need to do? Well, you need to raise some angel money. So I called my friends and was like, hey, running for president, uh, send $2,800. <laughs> and then, uh, then it's like, all right, check. And then it's like, well, I should uh, then build a team. I was like, who do I need for that? Like, and, and so we just had this little office and operated uh, like a startup. Um, right. And uh, I learned a lot. Uh, and I have to say, Kara, that being a presidential candidate was like an exercise in horrible leadership. Yeah. And and by that, what I mean is if you ever see a, a, a startup CEO who's just running around trying to stick their face in front of cameras all the time, they're probably a shitty CEO and their company is yeah. probably going to go to shit That's sometime in the not the future. Yeah. 
but as a presidential candidate, it was literally, it's like, ooh, a camera? Like, you know, what's that? You got a podcast? No offense. Untaken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it was trying to hustle and get your message out. Um, and it, it, it required me to really adapt myself as a human being a lot because I'm naturally a fairly introverted guy. Like I, I, I think of mm-hmm. myself as being substantive, you know, it's like talking about shit is not the same as doing shit. But uh, when, you know, like you, you're uh, an entrepreneur, so you just adapt. You're like, okay, turns out that like, this is the most impactful thing I can do. So let me try and get good at it. Were you surprised by how many, you, first of all, the online movement around the Yang Yang and stuff like that. And you're, I, you're the nicer version of Bernie Bros, I guess. I don't know. Um, but you have a really rabid fan base. Were you surprised by that? What do you think resonated so much, especially online? with people and you. I mean, just mentioning you gets like so much attention still. It's really fascinating um, to watch. What do you think that was? Why did it burst online? And what are you going to do with that? I, I think that people eventually sensed that I was trying to improve the human condition and that I didn't have a typical politician's motivations yeah. where I really don't care that much about my own political advancement if we could solve these problems and it did not include my running for president, I would have been delighted. <laughs> yeah. So so I think that's one reason why the Yang Gag sort of uh, formed was like, oh, like Andrew's just trying to do right by um, everyday Americans. As for what we're doing with it, and this is very relevant to the coronavirus, um, we're, we're going to be launching an effort on Humanity Forward uh, to try and help people um, because we're all about trying to get money into people's hands and I'm thrilled that the movement around our vision for the country is only growing. Uh, you know, like the support for Humanity Forward has been tremendous. And now that we're in, in a crisis mode, like we're going to do all we can to help. Um, so if you keep up with us over the next literally like couple of days, we're going to announce uh, this coronavirus relief fund mm-hmm. that's going to start in New York City, but then hopefully go to other parts of the country as well. And this is a relief fund to do what? Put money in people's hands. Mm-hmm. No, just uh, take money and put it where it can do the most good. And what is the criteria for that? It, businesses or, or what? Well, we're, we're going to start with the working poor in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that's pretty uh, high impact. Yep. Um, and then we're going to move to service and tipped workers who've lost their jobs. Um, we think that's very high impact. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to start just taking requests at, at uh, Humanity Forward's website, Move Humanity Forward, and start moving um, small amounts of cash. Let's call it like, uh, you know, a few hundred dollars into people's Can hands directly. To notice what it does, or is there any way to measure the impact of it? Well, in, in the first couple of instances, there will be, because like the working poor in the Bronx, we're working with a financial institution that actually has very direct connections uh, to these people. Um, and then the the tipped workers, we can track them down to and have some data. And then our, our own people will have some uh, incidents. But the fact is, Kara, we're pretty confident that putting money into the hands of uh, working poor in this time of need or a, a service worker that lost their job is an absolute good. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that, to me, right now, when you're in a crisis, like, you, you know, you can't be that concerned about um, whether or not you're going to be able to measure precisely how much good is being done. And this is the same sort of principle that the government is adopting now. It's like they're about to dispense hundreds of billions of dollars in our hands. That's the right thing to do. Uh, you know, what they shouldn't be doing is like trying to figure out whether or not you or I 
spent the money on vitamins. <laughs> right. they, well, they've been doing that. They've been attaching uh, social money that they give uh, to people uh, who are getting various things to help them along. They've been attaching your working, you're having some sort of measurement to it lately. And now that's changed, obviously, rather dramatically. Well, well to me, the argument should be, certainly on a society-wide level, is that it's our money anyway. Uh, right. And that if you are a shareholder of Verizon and Verizon sends you a dividend, Verizon never is like, hey, make sure you spend mm -hmm. that dividend on X, Y, or Z. <laughs> You're like a shareholder of Apple. You know, same thing. And so at this point, we have to regard our people as shareholders of the country and treat people like adults. That can do what they want. So I want to get back to the campaign. Where, what was the surprising thing? What did you like about it? What did you? What was your favorite part of it? Just talking ideas. You were. You were. I gotta say, people don't realize we did a we did a podcast, and then afterwards, you had a table full of people. You kept talking about ideas with. What part did you like? What part didn't you like? The part that I liked was what you described about uh, folks who are supporting my campaign, and when you see them in real life, mm -hmm. like imagine being uh, on. Uh, four-day tour of New Hampshire or Iowa. And then there are people that had dropped everything uh, and moved to Iowa or New Hampshire to campaign on your behalf. And right. they just believe so much in you and, and your campaign that they decided to knock on total strangers' doors and say, hey, have you heard of Andrew Yang? And we should really be able to do this for ourselves. Uh, that was immensely touching and gratifying. It made me just want to fight harder for those people because they believed in me, they, they believed in the campaign, and, and that was my favorite thing about running. Uh, my least favorite thing was being away from my family because I've got two young kids, mm -hmm. uh, and there came a point literally when my boys would, would ask um, Evelyn, like, you know, where is daddy? Like, why has he not been home for 10 days or whatever the heck? Um, so that sucked. Uh, you know, it got a little bit better down the stretch when the family started coming out mm -hmm. on the road periodically. That was my least favorite thing. The other thing that I really grew to, to um, struggle with uh, was like elements of interacting with the media and, you know, just like putting on makeup and sitting there in a chair and like, uh, and then oftentimes, like, frankly, feeling like you're being uh, dismissed, like you were sitting there and being like, Here, who's this wacky guy? <laughs> right, right. Andrew, I did not do that. I gave one of the longest interviews. Like, it was amazing. When I was doing that podcast, I was like, why are you talking to that wacky guy? I said, he's not wacky. Like, let's just try to listen to some of these ideas, which was interesting. And certainly you were one of the good ones, Kara, where um, you took me very seriously, listened, um, and I appreciate you for it. Thanks. I mean, I did it. We did it early on, actually. It was interesting because a lot of people were wondering why I was talking to you at all. And I was like, these ideas are really important. Uh, you know, it was interesting how, how presidential campaigns go is how they, what the political reporters rate, you know, ideas. And to me, it's all about ideas and what people are saying. And I, I mean, I interviewed Marianne Williamson too, because I, I was sort of like in the time of hate, someone's talking about love. Why not just listen to her? Like it, what's, the, what's the, what's wrong with that? Um, I, I love Marianne. Yeah. I think she's freaking great. <laughs> Let's talk about the people on the campaign. Is there anyone you didn't like? You're not going to tell me. Um, you all seem, you all seem, you seem to be the jolly one among all of them. They seem to enjoy Andrew Yang for some reason. It, it seemed like it. I don't know. Maybe it's just. Well, I, I think that most of them did like me, Kara, because they did not regard me as a threat. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All right. But you all seemed pretty jolly as a group. It was interesting, except when say Pete would go after Amy Klobuchar and this and that. I mean, what was that like? It was sort of like to watch the dynamics of all of them. Not You can talk about individually if you want, but how is the dynamics among everybody? Or is it just a lot of theater? 
Well, it's certainly the case that everyone was very nice to each other uh, at the debates before where they got out there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like in the back, everyone was chummy. And then you get out there and then occasionally they have a rehearsed attack line and they stick it to each other. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I, I will say, I think that Pete um, had a manner that, you know, like uh, I think some people took as uh, kind of aloof mm-hmm. or cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so it, I think that there um, may have been an, like some fanning of, of some ambient tension between him and some other candidates. Right, right, right. And how, how, is there anyone you like better? Now you, now you backed uh, uh, Joe Biden. Why did you do that? And a lot, some people were disappointed you did. It was interesting that you, that, that I, I was watching sort of the reaction. Tell me why you decided to do that. I decided to back Joe Biden because after he won Michigan, he became our presumptive nominee. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can't waste any time trying to unify behind a nominee to take on Trump in the fall. And I had already pledged that I was going to support the eventual nominee. And to me, at that point, Joe mathematically was going to become the nominee. So then I said, well, I guess I should get behind him and try and bring people together. Yeah. Um, and, and Joe had called me the week before and asked me to help his campaign and endorse him. And I put him off at that time because I said, you know, like, I, I think that the voting hasn't really resolved itself in right. this way. And that was a hard conversation. Um, but then when I felt like the voters had spoken post-Michigan, I said, OK, let's just move this process forward. And uh, yeah, like it was a hard thing to say because I admire Bernie and his supporters a great deal. Uh, he inspired my run, honestly. I supported Why? him in 2016. Why did you inspire your run? Because of, of ideas or what? Yeah, just seeing him in 2016 and, and seeing the ideas he was running on, like I, I thought there was a lot of merit to the fact that our economy has completely lost uh, its ability to translate a better way of life to millions and millions of Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought his diagnosis was... Bro. I didn't know you were a Bernie bro, Andrew Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I was a burner. So <laughs> though I voted for Hillary in the general. You know, I'm not like... Uh, yeah. I, I say I'm pro-civilization. Okay, good. Uh, uh, but to me, his critique was spot on. Um, I thought I could improve upon some of his solutions. Uh, and so he inspired my run. And it was very difficult for me to disappoint many... Of Bernie supporters and, and back Joe Biden, but I just thought it was the right thing to do for the country because we have to defeat Donald Trump in the fall. Do you want to work for Joe Biden if he wins? Well, it's certainly hard to say no to the president. I know. What would you want to do if you had your choice? Oh, I'd like to head up a new Department of Technology and Innovation yeah. because I think we need to try and drag the government into the 21st century. I will be and your it's- Andrew. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you should be. I mean, heck, we, there are a bunch of us that know that this needs to happen. And it, it seems like a, a pretty easy post for me to get, given that it doesn't exist yet. So yeah. I feel like it's not even going to be crowding someone else out. <laughs> no, I talked about it with Nancy Pelosi. I talked about it with Rokana, this idea of a Department of Internet. Like, in, I guess you're right, innovation. What were you saying? Innovation and technology. Uh, technology and innovation. Because it, like every other industry has a department. Like, it's really interesting. Like, you have NASA, you have all kinds of stuff for our biggest industries. And our biggest, our most important and valuable industry doesn't have any regulation for SpeakUp. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, in the next section, but it would be interesting to have like a cabinet level position in that area. Make the argument, yeah. Andrew, why you should have that. Well, the position should exist. Uh, and if there's someone else who is a better fit for it, then I, I'd uh, be glad to have a face off with them. <laughs> but it's, it's more than the CTO, right? You're talking about re- a real substantive department. 
Yeah, because I, I, I'm very, very concerned that our government is asleep at the switch when it comes to many things, but particularly technology. And technology has been transforming our way of life for decades, and the government has been absent. And that's been okay uh, for many things, but it's been not okay in others. And we need to speed up in terms of both the way the government is facilitating and enabling certain areas of development, but also in some cases saying, hey, you know what, maybe we shouldn't just have everyone competing to produce artificial intelligence as quickly as possible because maybe something uh, unforeseen occurs. Or maybe we shouldn't have social media apps that are completely dominated by financial incentives to the potential detriment of our kids' mental health or our democracy. I mean, you know, th these are things that uh, the government should at least have some ability to monitor at a minimum and then either help or say, you know, you, you might want to put the brakes on a little bit. And this isn't just me. I mean, many responsible technologists have come and, and just said, look, there needs to be something in terms of guardrails for some of these issues, because having us just nakedly compete against each other will result in something uh, that nobody wants. So what are you what legislation right now are you supporting or or not at all? Or do you think it, it hasn't been correctly thought about? Well, one thing that that I've I've already said I would do is that we need to put someone like Tristan Harris in charge of figuring out what's going on with the social media apps and the way that they're interacting with our kids. Mm -hmm. um, because at this point, we have record high levels of anxiety and depression among teenage girls in particular. That is hand in hand with smartphone uh, adoption and social media apps. And no one be knows better than Tristan what We're design choices are being made. He has, a, he has a group that looks at this, that uh, I think the, the Center for Humane Technology. Yeah. And so we need to give Tristan some clout and say it's not enough to advise these tech companies and hope that they do what's best, even though it's going to be against their financial interest to do so. I mean, we know how well that's going to work. <laughs> you, know, like you need to have just on be like, hey, here's some like real guidelines. Yeah. One of the things you just said is naked competition and what it leads to. And actually what it's led to is monopolistic tendencies. Yeah. And, and, and this is something you and I discussed before, Kara, but we, we both know that, we all know that uh, one of the most popular business plans in Silicon Valley now is to become just big enough to be interesting enough that one of the behemoths gobbles you up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's the business plan. They, they, they throw down a hundred million, then you win, your investors win. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, you can go off into the sunset and try and do it again. Right. Um, but that isn't the dream of yesteryear where you were trying to build the next HP to compete against these guys. Right. Um, and it's bad for innovation over time because half the time when they gobble you up, like they, they may or may not even integrate your stuff into there. <laughs> right. No, no, they're called killer acquisitions sometimes in order to kill off rivalries. Sometimes it's talent. Sometimes it's just to fix a feature. You know, it's but it's it, but you're right. This is something the FTC is looking at right now. Um, these smaller acquisitions, which I think is where the real uh, problems happen. They're sort of quietly in the background that in acquisitions, people you know they focus on the WhatsApp or the or the big act or Instagram. And the real problem is somewhere else, very in very smaller amounts that just suck the innovation out of Silicon Valley and tech. Yeah, you just like suck up that team of twelve engineers who are working on something really new and innovative, and then it disappears. Yeah, a hundred percent. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about that and where tech is going, Andrew. Since you're going to be the head of the new Department of Technology, I want to find out what you think we should focus in on going forward. I'm here with Andrew Yang. He's the founder of Humanity Forward, which is an organization that advocates for universal basic income. He also ran for president of the United States. Uh, when we get back, we'll talk about that and where he thinks this campaign is going to go if Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. 
With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Andrew Yang, who needs really no introduction. His motto for his campaign was Make America Think Again, math. That's an excellent uh, (laughs) motto. Did you think of that, Andrew? Was that yours? We kind of backed into it, Kara, but it's Make America Think Harder. Uh, And the same idea. And uh, it just came about because we were using uh, math as a uh, motto, and then someone actually backed into the acronym. <laughs> yeah. so, I, I'm still waiting for my pen, Andrew. I'm waiting for my math pen. I'm going to get into tech overall and how to deal with all these problems and what you think the three things the government has to do. And then I want to end talking about why you think we need this change in, uh, in administration um, going forward. But what do you think the key things, I mean, you were making a joke in the Make America uh, Think Harder against the Trump administration, which is MAGA, Make America Great Again. How do you assess, you were, you were putting a contrast, how do you assess the Trump administration right now? Uh, I think the coronavirus crisis is demonstrating the worst of this administration, where it's hard to have a high-functioning government if it seems like many of the senior leaders are disdainful of the role of government. And uh, a global pandemic is exactly the kind of thing that makes you appreciate a high-functioning government. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if we had had uh, the right administrators in place from day one, um, it's possible you and I would be having this conversation in person right now, <laughs> not doing it, um, you know, from our shelters. So this could be the defining legacy of the Trump administration to an even higher degree than his corrupt practices or his uh, fanning various xenophobic sentiments, uh, you know, like this could be it. I thought that Donald Trump was a major uh, step back in terms of our country's development, even before a lot of these events. And and these events have, I think, uh, laid bare the fact that who you have running the government actually can make a huge difference in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Do you imagine that it, it still has resonance, what he has done, which is uh, fear mongering, creating a base of people who hate the government? Uh, you know, there's several different, you know, racism, xenophobia. It has worked in a lot of ways. Well, it's worked, Kara, in part because to me, it was one of the lone narratives out there. Uh, and it's why I ran for president, is that if you have 4 million manufacturing workers who lost their jobs in the swing states. I have been to those towns. I worked in the Midwest and the South for seven years as the head of Venture for America, this nonprofit that I'd founded. And I saw firsthand how these communities have never recovered. And what has been the democratic narrative um, in terms of why their way of life disintegrated, why their towns and communities have gotten blasted into smithereens? I haven't heard it. And then Trump came along with a narrative saying, it's their fault, build a wall, I'm going to make America great again. And then people, and I talked to these people, I talked to these people when I was running for president, many, many Trump voters supported me, because I was talking about the same problems that they saw around them in terms of the job loss and the substance abuse, and the loss of a a path forward that Trump was, but I had a different villain, Mm -hmm. uh, instead of foreigners, I was saying it's automation and this sped up version of capitalism. 
And I had a different solution. Instead of build a wall, it's like put money into your hands. Right. And that was enough such that 42% of my supporters said they would not support the Democratic nominee because I was actually crossing over to a whole set of Trump supporters. Now, does Trump's narrative still have power today? It does among a lot of Americans, uh, for sure. Will this coronavirus crisis heighten people's skepticism of the Trump narrative? I believe it will. Uh, I think that there's a very good chance that uh, this does become his defining legacy, and it's the reason why he loses to the Democrats in the fall. Because they have a better narrative, which is, I think, you're talking, you're talking about narratives and storytelling in a lot of ways um, and how you frame an issue, how you frame, you know, it could be this way or this way. And again, you gave him another villain. Do you imagine he has seen the light here? He's now surrounding himself by experts. He's suddenly in the last two days, he must have looked at polling, has been, I hate to say this, but normal, I guess, sort of, except then he comes out with another Chinese flu and then a White House official tells it was CBS um uh, correspondent, he, a terror, I'm not even going to repeat it. It just was an incredibly rude anti-Asian uh, uh, name for the flu. Do you, do you think it's changed or it's just in order to look like he's competent? Well, I, I think that he's incapable of sticking to a particular approach for more than uh, a couple days. And so you'll see him lurch back and forth. You'll see him try and distract and inflame. Uh, but the fundamental truth is that if your kid's school has closed and you're at home, um, you're pissed off, you know, you're <laughs> looking up being like, what the heck is going on here? Yeah. And it's very hard to rewrite uh, the Trump administration's original response to the pandemic, which was essentially uh, dismissal and like really just like, you know, terrible misstatements. Have you experienced any uh, discrimination based on this? I mean, there was a lot of uh, anti-Asian uh, discrimination, and I've seen lots of accounts of people talking about that. You know, uh, uh, I haven't directly, but I have friends who have, and it is real. Uh, you know, I mean, someone actually asked me about this question on the trail at a particular point where they said, hey, what can we do about the fact that people uh, are uh, more scared of being around Asians um, because of this virus? And at the time I said, well, the, the best thing we can do is try and get the virus under control so that this recedes into the, the past. And it's very difficult for people to avoid instinctive reactions that even cognitively they know are completely misplaced. Mm -hmm. So, so there's nothing, I mean, one of the things is just pushing back on this narrative. Now, one of the things you just talked about was the different narrative you were telling Trump voters, which was, this is not about immigrants. This is not about building a wall. That's not going to solve the problems about bigger forces at work, which are future forces like automation, robotics, AI, um, all kinds of things. I don't think you were trying to paint tech as the villain, specifically, but how would you frame that? And then I want to sort of end on you talking about what you think the key things tech needs to focus in on right now in this coronavirus crisis and then going forward for this country. Yeah, I'm very pro-progress and pro-innovation. I think most people sense that uh, about me. To, to me, the problem is that we've set up an incentive structure that ends up guiding our behavior in certain ways. And that's what we need to amend. Um, one thing I said was that it's ridiculous to hold an innovator accountable for the impact of their innovation 10 states away. Mm -hmm. Like that's not their job. You know, they're in the lab trying just to make it work. 
it's theoretically our government's job to figure out what's happening 10 states away. But our government is just so asleep at the switch that we can't conceive of a government that actually is able to do that effectively. I would disagree. I think they should understand the consequences of some of their inventions. I think Facebook or, or Twitter or any of these social media is a good example. They did, And the same thing with the way they design the apps, the way they design the devices. It's meant to addict, for one, in that area, or depress. And it's also meant to... Um, it doesn't have any, they don't have any sense of consequences. I just feel like they don't, or they don't. I think they have some responsibility in the design of this technology. I agree with what you just said. I think it's different if you're like um, a corporation that's making certain choices that you may know that are going to have adverse consequences for, for people outside of the building and being like an engineer in a lab, just saying like, hey, I'm trying to like, you know, make whatever project you have, you've given me like work better. Right. Um, but but I, I agree with what you just said. Mitigation is the word of the day right now. What is the mitigation for what's coming in technology, which is automation, robotics, AI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Well, the, the big cause I was championing is that we have to make people feel like innovation is good for them. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to feel like it's good for you if it just puts you out of your job. <laughs> so so, um, so the, the biggest positive step we could take is to say, look, we'll cut you in. Like everyone gets a share. Everyone gets uh, this freedom dividend of $1,000 a month. And that will allow us to start building an economy that revolves around you, your community's needs, your family's needs, because people will be able to pursue more of the work that they want to do. And then if we produce something awesome, like self-driving cars and trucks, instead of being super pissed off about it, like, uh, you know, maybe you'll be like, oh, good. Like, uh, you know, like we're, we're making moves in a more positive direction. Now, that's a very tall order because Americans' sense of well-being is inextricably tied to our livelihoods sure. um, and making a living. But that, that to me, was the first big move we'd have to make is to actually say that everyone's a stakeholder. Right. Of these technologies, which are the ones you think present? Where do you think each of them is going? Let's start with AI. Well, to me... There's a concern around artificial general intelligence that many of my friends um, share. I'm more concerned about artificial intelligence doing the work of hundreds of thousands of call center workers. And it's not really smart. It's just a really good decision tree with software that's sophisticated enough to detect changes in someone's tone of voice. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I was joking about, but it's true, it's like if you're in a startup um, one saying we have is throw money at the problem. And pretty soon the answer to everything will be throw AI at the problem. <laughs> Where, like if you're not sure what to do, you'd be like, if you get enough data, just feed it into the AI and it'll tell us what to do. Uh, and we're not that far away from uh, having AI that fulfills enough commercial tasks that it's going to affect many, many back office clerical workers I'm not as concerned about artificial general intelligence, though I, I understand that if you have AI that can improve itself, um, then that happens in the blink of an eye, for, like conceivably, where they, it can get, uh, if it can make itself smarter, then it can make itself infinitely smarter. Robotics and innovation? Yeah, the robotics, it's similar where the incentives around robotics are around trying to take out human labor from manufacturing and production processes, which I see as intrinsically a very good thing because a lot of those processes are somewhat dangerous, they're somewhat repetitive. Um, but it's the same thing where even today, manufacturing is the fifth largest sector of employment in our country. Like a lot of people think, oh, like manufacturing thing in the past. No, no, millions of Americans still working in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And so if you have robotics that can do some of like the lightweight, repetitive 
tasks, um, it's going to be a, a major problem for many, many American workers. Yeah, I just saw some really amazing stuff by a company called Carbon that is going to replace so much manufacturing. It's really cool. It's really fascinating. And then um, facial recognition. Yeah, I mean, Asia's way ahead of us uh, in this. Um, there's an Asian joke somewhere in there. But to me, uh, a lot of that's going to be regulatory. It's like the, the tech is going to be able to do a lot of things around facial recognition that um, both improve our convenience and, and decrease friction, but then also raise significant privacy concerns in terms of um, who uses the software and how. Um, the most natural uh, innovator in that space, unfortunately, or, or is probably going to be uh, government and various security agencies because they love the idea of just being able to identify someone who's like walking by a lamppost. And that's going to be a very big issue for us is how much privacy um, we demand uh, as opposed to having our security potentially enhanced by the fact that people can identify folks um, from hundreds of miles away. And then space. I want to finish on space. No, I, I was at SpaceX not that long ago. Um, you know, and people ask me about NASA a lot on the trail. And I said, look, uh, for better, for worse, we're at a point now where private companies are going to be leading the way. Um, and to me, government's job should be to either fill in gaps that private industry will not touch um, on things like a space telescope to detect whether asteroids are coming our way. It sounds like science fiction, I know, but we actually could really use one. And that's something that no company is going to just decide to buy. <laughs> um, but, but other than that, it, it should be trying to support uh, the SpaceX's and Blue Origins and try and see to it that American companies um, actually become the world leaders, uh, which I think they're poised to be. And lastly, um, when you think about where the next wave is, is there anything that I've named, named some stuff that are coming and then are there, is there one area of tech that really interests you? Well, I'm certainly very interested in anything that can mitigate the impact of climate change. Like, uh, uh, you know, you could even say that climate change might even be at least in some way related to this pandemic in terms of a warming planet probably is going to give rise to biological conditions that we have not seen before. And so any tech around that, I think, is crucial. And it's going to be a, an area where I think government has to play a very big role in because, uh, to me, climate change is perhaps like the single biggest non-market problem that we're facing. Uh, obviously, if you could come up with a company that could like solve climate change, then you'd probably make a lot of money. Um, but the, the costs are so diffuse that it really does become a society-wide problem. And yeah. when I've talked to folks who are looking at climate change, you could tell that a lot of them are just doing it because it's the right thing. Like there are other ways they could try and make money. Right. So the government has to try and provide the impetus behind a lot of those efforts because a lot of them are money losers initially. Like you have to get to a certain size and scale to be able to produce any kind of market returns. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a climate change tech is my big thing now. I just keep talking about it. I make I sometimes make things up like saying the world's next trillionaire will be a climate change. We hope so. I mean, if we no, could do things right, uh, that's for sure. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, whatever. It's in this area of analog. I'm, I'm going to write this week about analog has roared its way back into everybody's <laughs> consciousness now. Kara, before we, we wrap, I just want to say a couple of things about what, um, uh, like the, the time we're in. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, we're trying to help at Humanity Forward. So number one, if you want to help with the coronavirus crisis and getting resources into the hands of the working poor, not just in New York, but around the country, please do go to movehumanityforward.com 
um, because we're going to be launching initiatives around the country that hopefully can help us all get through this time. And the, the second is that we're working on a way to activate consumers' data privacy rights um, so that we can have a more meaningful conversation between consumers and tech companies. And so if you want to have an organization fighting for your data property rights, also go to uh, movehumanityforward.com and hopefully we can make meaningful progress on our data being ours. And if tech companies decide to use it, then we can have a meaningful say in what that looks like and where the value goes. All right. Andrew, are you going to run again for something? I mean, I know you want to be internet czar, but what are you going to run for something? I can say this uh, exclusively to your listeners, Kara. Um, <laughs> Andrew Yang is probably going to run for something again. All right. Well, there we go. All right. What? Uh, that, that, that I will uh, leave up in the air for now. We're looking at some different races, but no announcements at this time. Um, sorry, Recode, Decode, Kara. <laughs> Barry, I hope you do run for something. Not Senator, Governor, anything? You want to give us anything? You don't know. Yeah, we're, we're looking at a few things um, right now. Okay. Uh, but we're, we're also looking into the future. So, right. you know, uh, the, the problems that animated my campaign, unfortunately, are still going to be with us for quite some time. That is a really good way to end it. Andrew Yang, thank you so much with all these glitches. You are a guinea pig in this podcasting, the new reality of podcasting, which is remote. He's the founder of Humanity Forward. He obviously did an amazing run for president. And some of his ideas right now, because of the coronavirus, are getting a lot of attention, including giving Americans money right in their hands and treating them like adults with it. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on Recode Decode. Thanks, Kara. Always a pleasure. See you in person soon, I hope. I hope. I will. Absolutely. Andrew, where can people find you online and where can people find Humanity Forward online? Yes, the website is movehumanityforward.com. I'm on social media at Andrew Yang or Andrew Yang 2020 um, on most platforms. Thank you, Andrew, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Erica Anderson at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at HeyHeyESJ. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Miles Ewell. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, remote version. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO meets so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com. HBO Max.